now on All Our FM. It's London Bridge with George Matlock. You're listening to Anglo Polish Order FM. I'm George Matlock. This is London Bridge. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the spell of sunshine that we had in the middle of the week, but it always happens like that, doesn't it? Always in the the middle of the week. We have a very special guest with us today, someone who knows all about radio and TV, and in fact, she's a former BBC journalist. Delighted to welcome back Olenka Frenkel. So you've been to Ireland. Were you covering the G8 conference? No, I wasn't. I, I actually have a lot of friends there, and I looked with great interest at it. But I was in the west of Ireland, going mm. to sort of um, revisit childhood haunts of an early adulthood haunts of my own, and um, mm. see if uh, they've been horribly spoiled or not. And they haven't. They're beautiful still. So I'm really thrilled. Right, you've got to tell us about your Irish link then, because I didn't know you had one. Well, I went to Northern Ireland as a young journalist okay. and covered, worked for the BBC there and covered the hunger strike in mm. the early 80s and a lot of the uh, those the troubles in that time. I won't say the early troubles because they'd already been going on for about 15, 20 years. Um, but uh, I was there as a young journalist and really learnt the trade at the at the at the coalface there. Mm. Really enjoyed it, really loved it. And um, I married an Irishman. Okay. Uh, from Belfast, and uh, I kind of bought in. And my mother always said to me that because I'd been to a Catholic school in Wimbledon, I had been in some way conditioned to the Irish because the Catholic school contained mainly Polish immigrants and Irish immigrants. It was a grammar school, extremely academic and very, very ambitious for its girls. Uh, convent, actually, Ursuline mm. convent, but um, it had a lot of Irish nuns and a lot of Irish priests, and my mother always claimed that they sort of um, conditioned me to love them in some way, and in some ways it's true. I mean, I, if I hear an Irish accent, I'm always, you know, softened and mellowed by it. Yeah. So do you, do you say cheers or slauncher? Oh, <laughs> I, I remember my father, who also loved the Irish, but being a Pole, and he used to love to say slauncher. He made friends with a lot of Irish priests at the school where he was teaching. They were Jesuits, yeah. and they used to love going out drinking and being sort of outrageous together. And uh, he made friends with them all, and he learned to say slauncher through them. And that's so I've always said slauncher. Okay, fantastic. Um, now tell me, uh, you've got, um, I know you've got a bit of competition there today because you're in the, in the garden enjoying this weekend. You've got a blackbird in the background. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what nationality he is, but he seems to be singing at the top of his voice there, isn't he? Yes, I mean, well, I've got a very tiny little garden at the back of the house, but there are some trees in neighbouring gardens, and we get a lot of birdsong, which is fantastic for West mm. London. I mean, I'm very, very lucky. Don't they sing more powerfully at the weekend, don't you find? <laughs> I think they do. <laughs> or is it just, just that we notice them more likely? Anyway, look, welcome to the show. It's great to have you back. Um, now, we've got uh, a quick, quick uh, grip of, uh, what is it, four stories uh, this week. Yeah. Uh, they've all been kindly supplied to us by the Polish Media Issues Group, so our thanks to go, go out to them as always. Um, now, the first story that we've got is, uh, is from our, our favourite, the Daily Mail. Uh, this is a story uh, that goes under the headline of Coming to Britain, you could be conned, made homeless or s- set on fire. Right, well, let's uh, read together and see what we make of this particular story. 
So a video warning polls of the dangers of coming to Britain has been issued with the backing of the government. Migrants who are unprepared could be ripped off, made homeless or even set on fire by thugs, it says. The three-minute film, funded by Whitehall, warns of the consequences of illegal working, sleeping rough and street violence. It advises Poles to be well prepared if they are coming to Britain with a guaranteed job and backup money. But it also shows dramatic and alarming images of a Polish immigrant, played by an actor, who loses his job and is then beaten up and burned while he's sleeping on the street. The advice not to assume the streets of London or other British cities are paved with gold comes at a time of increasing concern about the plight of unemployed Eastern European migrants. Official counts say that around 4 in 10 of the rough sleepers in Britain come from Eastern Europe and more than a fifth are Poles. Romanian migrants are also living in desperate poverty in Britain. Westminster Council is anxious to stop begging by organised Romanian groups in the capital and this week there has been concerns over the appearance of an Eastern European shantytown in Hendon in North London. Whitehall has already backed efforts to warn Romanians and Bulgarians over the potential difficulties of life in Britain to try to prevent the arrival of unprepared migrants when the labour market is opened to citizens of the two countries at the end of this year. The Department for Communities and Local Government and the Foreign Office have both backed the three-minute Polish language video, as has the Polish Embassy in London. Narrated by an actor playing a successful Polish immigrant, it tells Poles that his success was achieved only by hard work and that many pitfalls await those who move to Britain. Before You Go, is the name of it, tells the story of what can happen if foreigners do not have a job or accommodation when they arrive from overseas. Mick Clark of charity The Passage, which made the film, said, In recent years, we have been first seen firsthand the devastating impact of people failing to prepare before they travel to the UK. Before You Go enables us to get a clear prevention message out there before people travel, to help ensure that those who do come to the UK, uh, their uh, move is a success. Housing Minister Mark Prisk said, Sadly, too many uh, rough sleepers are foreign nationals who arrived in the UK without realistic prospects and as a result ended up with a life on the streets. He said the film aimed to ensure migrants understand the risks. Olenka, now that's a pretty interesting one to start the show. Uh, what's your initial thoughts about that story? Well, a number of thoughts. I mean, I watched the video because um, I thought it was worth watching it through and I thought personally, it's well done, and it's a worthy message. I actually thought having £600 back up was quite a good thing to explain to them, that that mm. is the sum of money that will cushion you if things go wrong and give you the chance to get home without finding yourself in deep trouble. But like all government videos and government information broadcasts, this is common sense, and I know personally this is a subject of very lively debate all throughout Poland. There are very few people who genuinely think that the streets are paved with gold if they come to Britain or Germany or America. Mm. They know that uh, things can get very tough, and if they do live under that illusion, their mothers or brothers or sisters or neighbors will put them right straight away. So it's not as though the government has got a monopoly on this wisdom. This is... Uh, 
pretty common sense and mm. obvious stuff. My second thought was that if I were making that video, I'd have used real people instead of actors. I like the actors. The actors are great, and it's nice to give them a bit of work. But actually, if you'd had real stories without people sort of acting, mm. I think it could have been more persuasive to see a real guy telling what happened to him or a real woman telling what happened to her without the sort of thespian intonations that kind of weaken the credibility. Was there a touch of um, Shakespeare about the production? Well, you know, I, I, I always have a massive touch of sympathy with Poles, and there was a, there was a nice woman who was sort of describing how somebody stole all her money and so on. Yeah. And, of course, yeah, okay, I mean, that happens. It happens everywhere. It happens in Poland. It's bound to happen in Britain. Um, the thought that crossed my mind was, because of my own experience of what I know to be factually correct, that the people I know who were massively stolen from were actually stolen from by fellow Poles in Britain who rented out apartments that they had got through the council illegally and so on, and that they didn't mention. I mean, in the end, you know, the world's a tough place. Wherever you go, there is no country where you are shielded from criminals and con men. And Britain is the same as Poland, America... You know, Sweden, Denmark, there is no country of saints. Yeah, I'm quite surprised, actually, that the government has, in some ways, uh, chosen a very narrow channel to distribute this. Now, you might say, well, you, you would say that because you're from a radio station. Well, yes, I will say that. I well, mean, what is the channel? Well, the, the channel is, you know, you can go on YouTube and you can watch this. That's yeah. great. Uh, you, you know, you'll be sort of... Uh, but why would you? Why would you want to? It's not funny. It's not incredible. It's not, you know, of all the things you're going to watch on YouTube, you're not going to choose that mm. as well, a young person. Well, very true. Exactly. You're, you're far more likely to sort of elbow that out of the way and, and have a look at uh, Susan Boyle. It's one of those make-work schemes that the, lo the government loves to create and fund, which actually is saying the obvious and is not going, I wouldn't have thought, to enlighten anybody beyond the enlightenment that they would get from simply talking to real people. Yeah. Well, I, I do agree. Certainly in terms of the content, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, real, real stories uh, are always the most powerful stories. Um, in terms of the distribution, I think it, they've gone for the light entertainment end of the spectrum. They should have brought this to the attention of Polish television, so that's Polonia uh, Television uh, or FM, for example, ourselves, whoever, to, to do an audio version of this, which could be done, because there's a message which can be spoken. It doesn't actually have to even be seen. Uh, so I think, I think there is a missed opportunity there, and I think that's what uh, will make this sort of a very diffuse way of going about things. But I, I was very interested by the £600 backup fund uh, mm. figure. I, I must say, I never realised that number. Um, but, but you know what? It was, I think it was only about 15 years ago that Britain actually scrapped a Victorian piece of legislation that said if you had less than 37 pence in your pocket, mm. you could be arrested for vagrancy. Yes, you went to the workhouse if you didn't have a sixpence. My father told me that when he came to this country, he was, you know, just straight after the war, mm. and somebody who he was working with on the railway said, always have a sixpence in your pocket, an mm. old sixpence, which would be worth, what, about sort of two and a half P or something now. Yeah. And um, because if you don't have a sixpence in your pocket, they can take you to the workhouse. That was the rule. That was the rule, indeed. indeed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing I would say, it's, to me, very interesting, is that they said, you know, be legal. There's no reason for a poll to be illegal now that they're in the EU. And mm. actually, if you're legal 
And if you register and if you don't earn a lot of money, you'll pay no tax and you'll be eligible for every benefit. And I know a lot of Poles in this country who are claiming child benefit for their children in Poland. That's right. They've got children in Poland and they're claiming child benefit from them here for them here. And it's not illegal. It's perfectly okay. I mean, I think it's a bit of a cheek, frankly, mm. because if they're in Poland and they're also benefiting from Polish social services and Polish welfare, why should the British taxpayer be funding them? But, you know, that's the law. And if people are paying their taxes and they're paying the national insurance and they're declaring their income, why shouldn't they be eligible just like somebody else? Yeah. And in a way, you know, if they'd included that in their public information message, it might have been more powerful because it would have given people an incentive. Yeah, come to Britain, get legal, declare your earnings, mm. and this could be actually quite a lucrative arrangement for you. Well, yes, that is certainly true. It might have had the... But we, we all know there's an agenda here, and that is to try and discourage people from coming in the first place, I suspect. Uh, this isn't uh, an entirely <coughs> just a, a, a let's help uh, and sh you know, show some practical wisdom to, to polls. Uh, as you've demonstrated admirably in what you've just said, uh, Olenka, the reality is that many of these polls are already streets ahead of the British government in terms of knowing what the, their rights are, what How they can do. How to work the system, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, that's, they're intelligent people yeah. and who wouldn't do that if they had the opportunity, and especially if they're, they're committing no crime. Mm. Perfectly fine. The thing that struck me was that, and I don't know, of course, to, to, you know, to, to the exclusion of other languages, but certainly one thing that slightly um, sort of irked me was that they said that I think it was only 20% of, uh, of people who are sort of sleeping rough are Poles. Well, that means that 80% are not. And on that basis, why was Polish language chosen? And secondly, given that we should always be looking for prevention rather than cure, because we've already got the cure, you know, we've had 10 years of the EU, and in that time, uh, you know, the Poles have come and gone, and they've given back their horror stories to their relatives back home. As you say, they'll soon put them right, as you said yourself. <laughs> So you've had all that, but what about the Romanians and the Bulgarians, many of whom have only just been coming here since, what, 2007-ish, I think it is, um, on in, in terms of restricted uh, work permits. Uh, now they will have the full same uh, powers uh, of, of, and rights to work here as, as Poles and others uh, have uh, from the accession countries. Uh, and, the, and the real question has to, to ask is, why wasn't this video made in Romanian and Bulgarian? Because, quite frankly, we should be pre preparing the next, if you like, the next wave uh, from making the, perhaps, mistakes of the pioneering Poles. Yes, I mean, although if any country is perfectly prepared and conditioned not to listen to its government, it's the Romanians. I mean, they had, you know, years and years of oppression, and they, they are just absolutely primed, hardwired to ignore anything their government tells them, mm. because, you know, there isn't that sense of... Um, we've elected you, we buy in, you, you represent us. That, that isn't part of their cultural, political, economic tradition. So they're not going to listen any more than anybody else is. You know, we're all cynical about our governments and government messages. You know, you don't have to have lived 50 years in a communist country to yawn when you hear, a, this is a message from your government. You know, we don't buy in in Britain as Brits mm. any more than anybody else does. I just think that government should try and find less clunky ways of communicating.
Mm. Well, I certainly like the idea about turning it on its head and finding the, the, the you know, the promotional side rather than the preventative side uh, to try <laughs> and uh, win this debate over. Uh, right. OK, fabulous. Uh, right. Well, let's move on to the, to the next story, then, if we may. The lovely Christina O'Derny. Well, in, indeed, indeed. Uh, now, <laughs> this story is from, from the Indy, the Independent. Oh, I thought it was from the Telegraph. Oh, no, that's coming afterwards. Oh, OK. That's go, why, go that's why you then. slightly threw me. I thought, I didn't know she was in the next story, but then I haven't even read the next story yet. I'm actually going to read this with you. It's going to be literally okay. like, uh, let's all read together. Uh, right, are you sitting comfortably? Then <laughs> I shall begin. Right, so the next story then, under the headline of foreign-born men are likely to be in work, uh, more likely to be in work than British counterparts. Uh, this story, as I said, is from The Independent and uh, is as follows. Migrant workers are providing a £7 billion annual boost to the UK economy, reveals research by a leading international think tank. The Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development suggested Britain was near the top of a worldwide league table of nations whose economies benefit significantly from immigration. It also found employment rates among migrant men were higher than among their British-born counterparts, but that a higher proportion of migrant women were unemployed than British women. The figures for the contribution to the economy are calculated by subtracting an estimate for migrants' demand on services such as hospitals and schools from the amount they pay in taxes. The OECD calculated that it would be worth 0.46% of Britain's gross domestic product, equivalent to more than 7 billion sterling last year. Britain is benefiting more financially from immigration than many other major Western nations, including Germany, France, the United States and Australia. The OECD said annual immigration rates to Britain were slightly below the average for countries in the Western world. The size of Britain's foreign born population, 12%, is also below average and compares to 13% in the United States and 13.1% in Germany. It found 83.8% of foreign-born men were in work, slightly higher than the proportion of British-born men. The figure for migrant employment rates has risen from 78.5% 10 years ago. Sarah Mully who's Associate Director for Migration at the Institute for Public Policy Research, said, Migrants tend to be younger and they tend to be in employment. We also have a system that selects those most likely to be highly paid. Don Flynn, Director of Migrants' Rights Network, said, The OECD findings should allay fears that migration has unacceptable negative impacts on the economies of developed countries. The OECD, which analysed the immigration patterns in 24 nations, also found a leap in the number of people living in countries hardest hit by the debt crisis who were seeking to escape harsh austerity measures and long doll queues. From 2009 to 11, there was a 45% increase in people living, uh, sorry, leaving struggling Eurozone nations such as Spain, Portugal and Greece and heading elsewhere in Europe, in particular to Britain and Germany. This is remarkable, said Angel Guria, Secretary-General of the OECD. Now we are talking about migrants from other OECD countries leaving home for a better life. While economic woes mean Europeans are now much more likely to up sticks and pursue work in other countries, 
migrants and asylum seekers living in the crisis-hit countries are facing increasing discrimination. Greece, in particular, has uh, seen a rise in attacks against migrants, and the ultra-nationalist Golden Dawn Party now holds seats in the parliament. Cecilia Malmström, who's the EU Home Affairs Commissioner, said immigration issues give fertile ground for xenophobic and populist movements. She said shrinking economic possibilities foster hostility towards migrants, regardless of their situation, and some political, group, political groups are eager to exploit this. Mr Guria said mainstream parties had a responsibility not to play on populist anti-immigration sentiment, even perhaps at the cost of some votes. He said, what you can't do is welcome the migrants, then denounce them as a burden when the times get tough. What you can't do is say that we are welcome to make a contribution and then forget about them when they have been contributing to the coffers. Carlos Vargas Silva, senior researcher at the Migration Observatory at Oxford University, said it is important to recognise migrants are not one homogenous group and that different sorts of migrants have different impacts on government finances. Olenka. Well, I, you know, I, I invite him to give us a breakdown of different patterns of different groups of migrants and get the funding for that kind of research without being knocked down as stigmatizing one ethnic group against another. Mm. You start doing research and saying, oh, you know, the Poles are industrious, whereas the Romanians are lazy. And, you know, you, you're, going to be, you're going to be denounced as a racist. You're going to be finished. So, you know, that's a great, great, it's true. I'm sure it's true. Um, but you try to get funding to do that kind of research, mm. and you won't get it. I mean, immigration was always, particularly in the last you know, 20, 25 years, used as a way to uh, keep wage inflation down, i.e. you allow low-paid immigrants, not skilled immigrants, but low-paid immigrants to come and do the jobs that the indigenous population won't do, you uh, undercut them, you damage their unionization and their organization, you get the job done much cheaper with itinerant workers who are prepared to take lower wages and much worse living accommodation because they may well return to their home, they may not be married, they may be single men or single women living seven to a room and they may be prepared to take that because their conditions at home are so much worse. And that means, and that's why you end up with the situation that we have in this country very often, which is that the tough, dirty, nasty jobs are done in an exemplary way by immigrants, and the local indigenous population doesn't want to touch them because they can't see the point of it, frankly. Mm. They can get more on benefits, they don't have to, and you know, they're not going to compete with foreigners. And of course, that works in a certain way in the boom times. But when times get hard, and we go into a recession, then, of course, enmity and hostilities develop between not just the indigenous population, so called, and the migrant workers, but even different groups of migrant workers who will go into ghettoized gang warfares of one kind or another to try and dominate a particular market. That's just normal 
human behavior and that yeah. will happen in any place and um i think it was wrong of governments to invite immigration on a race to the bottom i.e. low-skilled workers in order to undercut britain's indigenous low-skilled workers we should have invited immigration on a high skill basis like mm. in other countries like australia for example like australia and that way we would not have developed the hostilities that do occasionally develop in this country although less so than in other european countries like france or germany i would say um and that would have been a wiser policy but this was a way of trying to contain inflation in our economy and to keep wage inflation down and of course the pigeons come home to roost always mm. okay well that's a very good point you make uh, we should have uh, looked at uh, 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 an immigration policy that encouraged uh, highly skilled people to to come to the UK. Well, of course, in a funny sort of way, that's kind of happened, though, hasn't it? Uh, in that, uh, in the last few years, with the economic crisis in Britain, uh, we have sort of seen a bit of a filtration process. Of course, we've just had the story about the homeless, but of course, but but the vast majority of those people who were struggling to make ends meet and when, um, whose English was uh, very poor, they had low skills, they didn't have interaction really with even with the English, and therefore could never improve their English. They they tended to go back to Poland, where, in fact, the economy has been doing rather better than Britain. Among uh, Poles, yes, that's yes. true. But there are other communities where that hasn't been the case. Granted, granted. You know, in, among the Islamic communities mm. uh, who've come from Pakistan, half the population has often not worked. The women mm. have stayed mm. at home, and that has meant that you then have a larger dependency on the benefit system. And that's when the economy begins to struggle, when immigration, which was designed to contribute to the labor force by unforeseen consequences, begins to become uh, a liability financially on the balance sheet. So I, th I think um, in that case, uh, it would be perhaps not uh, unrealistic to deduce that actually the Poles have proved to be far more flexible and far more mobile than perhaps some other ethnic groups. That is to say that they've gone with the ebbs and flows of the economy. If it hasn't worked out, they've gone back in the main, and those who've stayed have been those who've been able to obviously hold on to jobs in, uh, shall we say, white-collar professional uh, you know, uh, jobs where, where English is, is paramount, etc. Would you say that's fair? I've no, I have no evidence for it at all, but anecdotally, I find my, my own perceptions are that the Poles are better educated, more able, have a better work ethic, and are less of a problem, in inverted commas, than most other ethnic groups. Now, that it sounds like prejudice, and it may well be prejudice in favor of the Poles, but I know that everywhere I go, English people who have no connection with Poland, unlike me, uh, are saying that to me. I, I, I met a, a guy today, you know, Oxford-educated, pure Brit in every single way, who said to me, by the way, if you need anybody, I've got this fantastic guy. He's absolutely brilliant. He's precise. He's skilled. He'll do everything that he's allowed to do legally in your house. And he's, you know, he's wonderful. And I, you know, I can't praise him enough. I've got so many experiences of people praising the polls for their work ethic, for their education, mm. for their abilities. Um, but, you know, that's all anecdotal. I'm not sure how you can actually prove that. No, no, of course. No, but in any case, it is nice that, I hope, unprompted people have given you this kind of feedback. Yes, I it mean, a lot of them great. don't probably even know that I'm Polish because it's not something that 
they would necessarily deduce. No. But um, I, uh, I find it all the time. Well, there you go. Fabulous. Okay, well, the next story nicely sort of, I think, sort of uh, segues with uh, the, what we've just been talking about because this is about um, a GP's, a private GP that was set up by polls in Britain. Now, this story's got actually quite a lot of airplay a few weeks ago in the Daily Mail, which mm. is where it first appeared on the front page, uh, to uh, a bombardment of about 300 rather irate uh, comments from others who didn't uh, particularly favour the polls doing this some of whom even uh, suggested that the Poles go back to, uh, to Poland and manage their own hospitals over there. But anyway, uh, this story has been since um, upgraded or updated by uh, many others. Uh, the, um, uh, this is the Telegraph's take on the story. There's an attribution here to the venerable Economist magazine we'll be coming to in a moment. So under the headline of Why Stop at Private GPs, Poles Should Run Our Schools and Trains Too, thunders the telegraph. The latest issue of The Economist included a small story in its Britain section about MyMedic, a low-cost private GP clinic run by Poles. The clinic opened four years ago and has 30,000 patients on its rolls. Uh, Polish immigrants were fed up with NHS GPs who only gave them brief consultations and seldom worked 24-7. The clinic's charge fixed fees which are published on their websites for consultations and treatments, The Economist found. This means that they rely on regular customers for revenue and need to treat them uh, well if they are to retain them. It sounded like everyone's dream, a cheap but effective health service. No wonder the story has been picked up by the tabloids. I'd learn Polish if I had to, though thankfully the GPs speak perfect English, and as an increasing number of their patients are now natives as well. But why stop at GPs? Poles, with their hard-working ethos and having experienced communist queues and bureaucracy, lack of patience with inefficiency, should run schools and trains too. Look at PISA results, the International League table, which ranks schools around the world. And you'll see that Poland scores higher than Britain on every subject. In fact, Polish children in our schools bring standards up, especially in mathematics. Polish education has succeeded in widening access as well as improving results, and, at, uh, uh, and all at a fraction of the education budget of Western countries. The secret is greater local autonomy. Local government has taken the reins from central government. It makes the education system far more sensitive to pressure from its users. Parents and teachers know who is responsible for failing schools as well as successful ones. Once we've seen how brilliantly polls handle GP clinics and schools, why not hand over our railways to them too? Britain's trains are expensive, with tickets costing ten times what they do in the rest of Europe. One in eight trains don't run on time. But Poland, which has invested four billion, we're not sure about the currency there, um, in modernising its railway transport, sees the link between punctual cheap trains and an improving economy. They are ready to prune their railways of up to... 9,000 kilometres unused lines in order to keep the remaining system more efficient. Let the Poles run things here. They might do a better job of it. Olenka. 
Well, I mean, I, the thing I found so interesting about that was that the thread on that website mm-hmm. <coughs> afterwards was full of polls, outraged, and inviting the author of that report to go and travel on the trains in Poland and <laughs> try the, the health yeah. service in Poland and see how wonderful it actually is. So mm. the most cynical and poo-pooing response of all came from Poles who knew both systems mm. and who were very keen to pour cold water on any glorification. Christina Adoni, the author of that piece, she's a Catholic and very well-loved commentator mm. for, of Catholic affairs, and she will be fond of the Poles because they are a Catholic nation. And, you know, like many people, she'll be sentimental about the Poles. Well, you know, I, I know that's a temptation. I'm sentimental about the Poles, too. But an intellect, an intellectual needs to guard themselves against such sort of sentimental allegiances. Mm. I think, um, like, you know, I, I'm, with, I'm with the polls on the thread who say, just hang on a second. <laughs> Having said that, you know, that private medic, mymedic.com, I haven't partaken of that. I haven't bought into that. But on many occasions, I've been longing for something like that because there are so many times when in this country you just cannot get a very simple bit of vital medical help that you need. If you've mm. got an ear infection or if you've got an eye infection, which could rapidly cause very serious and life-changing complications, it can be six or seven hours before it gets treated. And for me, that is an outrage. You know, my mother was a doctor, and all my childhood, she worked during the day in the NHS, in England, in London. She was at Great Ormond Street Hospital where I spent a lot of my childhood. Mm -hmm. And in the evenings, on Mondays and Wednesdays, my dad cooked the dinner because she did an evening surgery. She did surgery every Monday and every Wednesday between 5 and 8. And she often didn't get home till 9 because she did calls. Now, who of us in this country get an evening surgery at our local GPs? Who of Mm. us get to go to our GP at 5 o'clock? I had a beloved, he was a sort of decorator, and he lived in my house with his wife and was earning money here, Paul. And Mm -hmm. he clearly had a problem with his heart. He was younger than me. He was in his early 50s. On Friday night, I called the GP because I could see he was white and he was weak, and I said he needs some help. And they said, oh, sorry, no, we're closing. It was a Polish woman, actually, in reception. Mm. And by... Monday morning, when they were open again, he was dead. Oh, no. He died. He died over that weekend. Oh, my goodness. Because, you know, she said, we're closing, we can't see him. You know, uh, impossible. Take him to A&E. And he refused to go in A&E, to A&E because the last time he'd been to A&E, he'd had to wait six hours. And he was sort of stubborn mm. person. And, you know, we lost him. He was a lovely guy. And I always feel so sorry. And I think back to my childhood, the NHS in the 60s and the 70s had GPs offering evening surgeries. And the day that comes back, I'll, we won't need mymedic.com. But until that comes back, God bless the polls for providing a short, small, limited, privatized service mm. so that if you need urgent help, you can get it. Absolutely, yes. One shouldn't see it as some kind of a substitute for the main infrastructure. But if you need that help, as indeed you clearly did, uh, in your absolutely harrowing uh, account there, uh, then clearly you, you should have some kind of access. 
You, I hope you don't mind me uh, prying a little bit on, on this and probing yeah, a little no, bit further. Did, did, did this tragedy happen in your home? Um, yeah, I mean, it sort of happened in my home. I mean, I lived, uh, I was renting a house, and I was having the house that I'd bought decorated. Mm. And his wife had gone back to Poland. She'd had enough of living here. But he, bless him, had said, I'm going to stay and I'm going to finish your house because I'd had them living with me for free for a couple of years. I had at that point been a single mother. I'd just been divorced. I had a young girl daughter. My boys had grown up, but I still had my 12-year-old, or she was 12 or 13, and my um, I was still working full-time. And I loved this couple, and I had a spare in my house, and I said come and live here, do a bit of cleaning and tidying up, be here for my daughter when I'm working, and, you know, it'll be fine. They lived with me in that house, and then I, because of the divorce, I sold that house, and I moved to rental, where I had another spare room for them, and they came and moved with me. And we must have lived together for about two and a half years. There was not a single crossword between them, between us, any mm, of us. Yeah. I was very fond of them. They were... I think, fond of me. The only thing that blighted that whole experience was she wanted to go back to see her grandchildren and she'd had enough of England. That was fine. And he stayed with me, but while he was still here in England, while crossing over the green from the rental house to the house where he was decorating, he collapsed. Oh, dear. And we tried to resuscitate him, and we almost did, but you know, he died in the ambulance. I was with him in the ambulance on the way to Charing Cross Hospital when he died. And I, you know, I just, it, it still it still devastates me. Actually, it was about two years ago, to, or no, three years ago to this day. Goodness. Uh, well, what a, what a subject to bring up uh, uh, on an anniversary. Yeah, sorry to... It's, to you no, know, no, but... listen, no, this, this is a real programme, folks, live radio, folks. You know, we, 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 you know, beware of imitations. This is the real thing here. And uh, whenever any of our guests tell us a story like this, I think it, uh, it does enrich all of us to hear it. We're very grateful that you share those, those kinds of personal notes with us, uh, Alenka. Uh, and I and I promise not to put you through any more of that today. In fact, we're going to change the subject now and <laughs> yeah. hopefully find a happier story. Sure. I'm, I'm desperately scrambling here for the for the final. We, we we always like to end the show with a happy story anyway. So I'm I'm desperately hoping that we can get a few gags out of the next one. Right now, this one actually comes from the New Zealand Herald, and uh, this story uh, under the headline of Gothic. Oh, this is going to be interesting. Gothic cradle for William and Kate. Here we go. An oak cradle designed to resemble a Gothic cathedral is headed from Poland to London for the July birth of the first child of Prince William and his wife Kate. Dariusz Berzia, who is a carver and a furniture maker in Tuszyn, central Poland, hopes to send the cradle off to Britain in uh, next Wednesday. In fact, just around the corner then. I hope we'll finish in time. We still have a couple of windows to add, some small columns and carvings, he told the AFP uh, agency on Friday from his workshop. I hope the cradle will be put in the newborn baby's room, Berger added. For the, for the April 2011 royal wedding, Berger's workshop was commissioned to make several pieces of furniture for a, a hotel in Stafford, where Kate Middleton's family stayed. But the cradle was intended as a gift for the royal couple, Berger said. 
for the design he drew his inspiration from 15th century Gothic cathedrals. A cradle for the heir to the British throne can't be made of a common style. In a common style, he added, he explained, the child will be third in line to the British throne after Charles and William. Well there, now that's an interesting little story, uh, if ever I saw one, a Polish link to, uh, to the royal birth-to-be. Well, I love the story, and I googled the guy to mm. see what this cradle looks like, and it's an incredibly impressive piece of carpentry. And I take my hat off to him, because this couple must be showered with the most hideous gifts from all <laughs> over the world. And this is one that is stunningly beautiful. It's beautifully made. The craft's work on it is just incredible. Mm. It made me want to, you know, hire the guy and build something for me if only I had a sort of palace to put it in. And I, I just thought, you know, what a wonderful thing to do, to go to all that trouble mm. and to produce a work like that for the baby. It's just beautiful. Now, the big question is, will he be able to have the satisfaction of knowing that it was actually used, or do you think it's going to be put away with the other other items in the collection? Well, you know, it would be a shame if he just got a sort of standard thank you letter. I mean, you know, I'm sure he will get some kind of thank you, because they are courteous people, and mm. I doubt very much that it would just be sort of squirreled away. Mm. But I, I would like to think that he would get um, an acknowledgement of the beauty of his piece of work because you know that's the thing that's the thing that will distinguish this gift from mm. so many others i mean have a look at it on the internet google um polish craft work for mm. kate and william and it'll come up google images and you will see what a lovely lovely item it is fabulous i'm going to do that right after the show because i'm just looking at the cue point and realizing we've we've overstayed as we always do but we usually we do, do sadly <laughs> Well, listen, it's been an absolute joy. Four stories and we've really got our money's worth there. Thank you so, so much. And to your special uh, uh, cameo performance there from uh, the, the Blackbird. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, he could take He's a bow as well. Bow. He's taking a bow, quite yeah. right. Watch those feathers fly. Right. Well, look, uh, I hope you've had a good time. We certainly have. I really enjoyed Absolutely. it, as always. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Alenka Frenkel, thank you very, very much for, for joining us. <laughs>